Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, the death toll is rising in Maui amid devastation from wildfires leaving people in need. We don't know if we feel people out here and I'm on nothing. A battle in Ohio over abortion rights. They have awakened a sleeping giant. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, a report on the state of men raises concerns about their mental health. Where are they finding solace? We should be concerned about that. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Wildfires ravaged the island of Maui and Hawaii this week, killing people and devastating homes and businesses. President Biden approved a major disaster declaration on Thursday to help get aid into the hands of people there. The death toll is expected to rise, and areas like Lahaina will never be the same. Thousands are still missing. We begin our team coverage with CBS's Jonathan Vigliotti. Multiple wildfires tore through Maui, claiming dozens of lives and destroying hundreds of buildings. What we saw was likely the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's state history. 80% of the tourist town of Lahaina is gone. Sunrise gave a full picture of the damage left behind. Entire blocks of homes and businesses wiped out. Some residents told us they never received official warnings. I realized when it was time to go when the smoke was so dark, we could not see anything outside. Liza Tobias took photos as she fled her home. She returned on foot to find it in ruins and her father, Carlo Tobias, missing after he refused to leave Tuesday night. I wanted to force him to come with me, but he did. He was very hard-headed and he didn't want to come. Many who escaped the flames are now waiting for roads to reopen to see if their home survived. But others who've been trapped inside by those same road closures are running low on basics. Blue Hawaiian Helicopters has been gathering essential supplies and carting them to their choppers, where they pack as much as they can for people running out of food and water. This is really the only way to get around these days. It, it is, unfortunately. We join them for their deliveries. I got a text this morning for a co-worker that they're running out of food, so uh, when our people need them, we're there. As soon as we arrived, the Blue Hawaiian fleet was greeted by the fire department, who helped them unload the supplies and then helped them reload with evacuating passengers. It does appear like a bomb and fire went off. Despite losing one of Maui's most beloved towns, Hawaii's governor is hopeful for Lahaina's future. It is going to take many years to rebuild Lahaina. It will be a new Lahaina that Maui builds in its own image. Jonathan Vigliotti, CBS News, Maui. The fire sent tourists fleeing to airports to get back to the mainland. Look at this line of people. Long lines, 
and terrified travelers. Driving through, you couldn't see any structures of the buildings. It God, looked like a bomb went off. It's just complete devastation. This family visiting the island from California jumped into the ocean to escape the fast moving flames. This ocean almost sucked my kids away a few times. But we, we stuck together, we, we held on. We're not going to die this way, no. Tourists stranded in terminals overnight slept wherever they could. We've established a home away from home. But for many who call Maui home, there's nowhere to go. I'm a little worried because I have a four-month-old and a two-year-old. Everybody lost everything. We don't know how to feel. People out here, no more nothing. They don't have fam, they don't have clothes, they don't have nothing out here. Families are cramming into emergency shelters, but they're quickly filling up. If you have the capacity to take someone in from West Maui, please do. I have some sheets and then I have some blankets. Yet despite the heartbreak, Hawaiians are doing whatever they can to help stranded visitors at the airport. Our community definitely has come together and has really pulled through. The generosity of these people towards us being displaced at the airport, they're actually serving us here and it's just heartwarming. Rudabe Shabazi, CBS News, Maui. Turning now to Ohio, where abortion rights supporters this week are claiming victory after voters rejected a ballot measure that would have made it harder to amend the state's constitution. CBS's Caitlin Huey Burns joins us, explaining Republicans were trying to change the law ahead of November's election. In November, there's going to be a ballot measure to change the Ohio state constitution to include uh, abortion protections. So, but in order to do that, they had to pass this kind of procedural hurdle first. And Republicans in the state legislature had set a special election for August to raise the threshold to change the Constitution. So Ohio state law was you just needed 50 percent plus one vote, so a simple majority to make any changes to the Constitution. Republicans anticipating this abortion amendment later this fall set the special election to increase that threshold to 60%. So in other words, they wanted to make it harder to pass abortion protections into the state constitution. So since they lost that battle, what does that mean for the two parties? I understand some Republicans are basically thinking, yikes, nationally, and Democrats are thinking, yay, nationally, for their attempts to basically uh, consolidate abortion rights in states across the nation. Yeah, so this had really sent kind of shockwaves across the country. This was a special election in August. You know, usually people don't really turn out in high numbers for this, but we really did see a pretty high turnout in Ohio for this measure. 57% of Ohioans who voted voted against this measure. So that sent a warning sign to Republicans that this is a really potent issue in American politics. And it also energized Democrats who feel like this is something that they can run on next year in 2024. But there are some nuances here. We have seen over the course of the past, uh, you know, over a year since Dobbs since the Dobbs decision, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, that um, abortion access has been a real animating force in American politics. We saw that in the midterms. We've seen that in a series of other races. Um, mo all of the ballot measures that have been put directly to voters in states on this issue, um, most of them have passed. Um, but the challenge is, does, for Democrats, is 
does that necessarily translate to support for the Democratic candidate? And so that's going to be kind of the nuance that we may see uh, next year. But this vote um, and others that we've seen over the past year indicate that this is something that has really been driving voter turnout. CBS's Caitlin Huey Burns. Now to California, where the future is hitting the streets of San Francisco, but opponents are raising serious safety concerns. CBS's Jim Crisula with more. California regulators have decided to allow robo-taxis to operate 24 hours a day. Sharon Giovanazzo is with the Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Many times taxis and rideshare services have left me standing on the side of the road because I choose to navigate my world with a guide dog. Edward Escobar is with the Alliance for Independent Workers. This is what big money from the tech titans and the corporate world can do to buy their way into disrupting society. Other opponents say robo-taxis have already caused problems. Problems with unexpected stops that have blocked traffic. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Coming up, the heat and its red-hot effect on inflation for many. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland Friday announced the appointment of a special counsel in the investigation into Hunter Biden, President Biden's son. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Republican Jim Jordan, is calling the move a new way to whitewash the Biden family's corruption. Hunter Biden's lawyer says his team expects a fair resolution. CBS's Christopher Cruz. Garland said Friday he has named David Weiss as special counsel. This appointment confirms my commitment to provide Mr. Weiss all the resources he requests. It also reaffirms that Mr. Weiss has the authority he needs to conduct a thorough investigation and to continue to take the steps he deems appropriate independently based only on the facts and the law. Weiss is the U.S. attorney in Delaware and will continue in that role. He's been looking into Hunter Biden's financial and business dealings. By being named special counsel, he'll have broader authority to conduct a more sweeping investigation. Last month, a federal judge raised concerns about a proposed plea deal in the tax and gun case. Weiss says talks since then have broken down. House Republicans are conducting their own investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings. Christopher Cruz, CBS News, Washington. On Thursday, new economic data came out showing that consumer prices rose 3.2 percent last month. That's a lot lower than the 8.5 percent at this time last year. CBS's Carter Evans reports inflation is down in some areas, but the summer heat is keeping some cost at the boiling level. I don't have to worry about paying this air conditioning bill. For Robin Lund, the air conditioning in her building's community room is a welcome relief. What do you keep the thermostat in your apartment? Oh, 78. 
But her July electric bill still jumped 46%. And on a fixed income, she can barely cover the basics. I have to choose, you know, milk one week, eggs the next week. It's very difficult. The inflation numbers seem to be easing. Are you feeling it at home, though? No, not at all. Running air conditioning in the record heat is expected to drive up energy costs nearly 12% this summer. It's a budget buster for some families. There's a lot of work that shows uh, that uh, poorer households uh, do suffer a higher inflation rate. These people are feeling it's somewhere around 5 to 6%. That's because most of a low-income family's budget goes to necessities, which are still rising, like rent, groceries, and electricity. And there's new evidence people are using credit cards to cover the bills. For the first time in the U.S., credit card debt has surpassed $1 trillion. We polled consumers that carry credit card balances about what was behind that, what caused it. Emergency and unplanned expenses was the top answer. But even everyday expenses, about one in four, it's a sign of financial strain. Now, gas prices have ticked up in recent weeks, but a little too late to impact the July inflation report. If those prices keep rising, it could put inflationary pressure on next month's reading. Carter Evans, CBS News, Los Angeles. It's that time of year again. Back to school shopping has parents spending a record amount on supplies this year. Oh, you need a hard plastic pencil box. Parents are checking those supply lists twice. Right there, those lunch boxes. As they plan to spend a record amount on back-to-school shopping. The National Retail Federation says families with students in elementary to high school are expected to fork over $890. Those with college kids, a record $1,366 per student. One reason for the increase, about a third of shoppers are buying big-ticket items like computers and phones. New data show prices for smartphones are actually down 17.6% from last year, and books and other educational supplies are down 3%. Children's footwear is also cheaper. Being able to find it on sale is always going to be a, a good thing. Samantha Gordon from Consumer Reports says many retailers are offering deals, so compare prices. More than a dozen states offer summer sales tax holidays, which add to the savings. Having two to shop for since things have went up over the last couple of years, and the sales tax, that's going to help out a lot. Experts say while one-stop shopping is tempting, it's important to take your time and be methodical. If you're really looking to save money, the best strategy is to spread out your shopping over time and over different retailers. And time's not up when the school bell rings. You can ask teachers which items are going to be needed right away and what you might be able to hold off on until the later months. Advice that could help shoppers. I try to penny pinch whatever I can. Stretch every dollar. Haley Ott, CBS News, Clifton, New Jersey. But an Oklahoma group is looking for donations to help parents and teachers with cost. Families struggling um, just simply can't afford to buy the school supplies that their students need. It's not of the children's making. They need those essential supplies so that they can learn and, and so that they can be engaged and participate in the classroom activities. Nancy Belsley is the founder of The Pencil Box. Belsley says inflation is costing the pencil box more this year. We're having to pay more for those school supplies in order to ensure that all students, regardless of their zip code, have the supplies they need for successful learning. KOTV reporter Caitlin Deggs is in Tulsa, where at least 70 percent of students live at or below the poverty line. 
Hip-hop heads are celebrating around the globe, but especially in New York. Hip-hop was born 50 years ago on August 11th in the Bronx, and it's generated billions of dollars and created some of the biggest stars in the world. CBS's Skylar Henry looks back. Happy birthday to hip-hop. Put your hands in the air! Multi-generational, 50 years from the Bronx to TikTok to the whole world. Artists from the culture-changing genre have reached the top of music charts and fanned out into fashion, business, and even sports. But to see how it's grown, Clive Campbell, known globally as DJ Cool Herc and credited as one of hip-hop's pioneers, says you have to know how it started. In the early 1970s, hip-hop's counterculture rose in the face of poverty, gang violence, and crime in New York. Herc and his family immigrated from Jamaica, where he was influenced by a range of musicians and genres. Music ain't got no color. No color. If it's good, I'm, I'm going to play it. No matter what, I'm going to play it. Herc and his sister Cindy say they never thought their Bronx back-to-school recreation room party 50 years ago, where Cindy made the party flyers and an 18-year-old Herc spun records would be so foundational to a new form of music. I said, Herc, you're going to be the DJ. He has all the music and, and the records and everything. When Herc extended the record's breaks, or the beat in between verses allowing the partiers to dance longer, a new phenomenon was born. But it was more than just scratching records and having a good time. Herc says it was about bringing cultures together. People picked it up and took it to the next level. Picked it up and took it, and that's what a culture does. You exchange. That melting pot has influenced music entirely from then to now, putting the spotlight on regions across the country and around the world, allowing artists to add their own twist to the art form. The people are the ones who recognize it. The people speak for you, you know, the people are the ones who said, yeah, you did this, we're thankful. As the genre looks forward to the next half century, Herc and Cindy say they're excited to see hip-hop to continue to evolve. Skyler Henry, CBS News, New York. Coming up, the battle to restore honor to thousands of veterans. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. COVID-19 cases are rising across the globe, sparking new concerns even though deaths are down. CBS is Cammie McCormick. The World Health Organization says the number of new COVID cases rose 80% in the last month. Even though it says COVID is no longer a global health emergency, it warns the virus will continue to circulate and mutate, causing occasional spikes in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Summer gatherings, travel, and a new sub-variant could be playing a role. These latest numbers could be misleading, though, as little testing is going on. The WHO has already designated a new variant of interest. This as a new COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. is awaiting approval from the FDA and CDC. The shots are expected to be available by September. An infectious disease expert, Dr. William Schaffner at Vanderbilt University, says they are intended to protect against mutations of the original COVID virus, including the current dominant strain. It creates new distant cousins. Eris is one of those new distant cousins. It's highly contagious. It's now starting to spread across our country and in other parts of the world. Turning now to a deal between Iran and the U.S. that is set to free five American citizens in exchange for releasing billions in blocked funds. Shortly after their release from Tehran's notorious Evan prison, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said U.S. officials spoke with the five Americans. 
I think they're, uh, needless to say, uh, very happy to be out of prison. The Americans may be back on U.S. soil as soon as September, but that depends on a series of sensitive diplomatic arrangements. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. There's a lot of negotiating that's left to go here to get them home. They are not safe. They're out of prison, which is a good thing, but they are not completely safe. Over the coming weeks, Iran will gain access to $6 billion held in a restricted account in South Korea. Those funds will be transferred to Qatar. Once there, Iran will be able to use them for purchases permitted under U.S. sanctions. Tehran also claims that five Iranians will be released from U.S. custody. A U.S. official told CBS that no such exchange has taken place. The families are eager to reunite with businessman Siamak Namazi, imprisoned in 2015. Environmentalist Murad Tabaz and businessman Imad Shargi, taken in 2018. The U.S. considers them wrongfully detained, as the Shargi family told CBS Mornings in 2021. Do you have any idea why the Iranian authorities would take your father? Yeah, um, it's because he's an American citizen. I mean, they, there is a history of this happening to be used as leverage. Granting any relief to Iran's regime draws political heat. Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence said the released funds will encourage hostage-taking. But I think President Biden's decision is a disgrace. The United States of America doesn't pay ransom. The White House said this is not ransom and that no U.S. taxpayer dollars will be used. The funds are from unfrozen Iranian oil revenue. Now, two additional Americans have asked for their names to be kept private but are part of this release. And the U.S. government warns Americans against any travel to Iran. Margaret Brennan, CBS News, Washington. An update now to a CBS News investigation. At least 35,000 service members were kicked out of the military because of their sexual orientation. But just over 1,300 have had their discharge status changed. There's a new lawsuit against the Pentagon seeking to restore honor to thousands of others. This is 24-year-old you. Correct. You remember what she's thinking? I thought I was proud at that time. Putting on that uniform was everything. When Cheryl Farrell joined the Navy in 1985, she thought she'd found a career. You wanted to do 20 years. That was my plan. You didn't even do 10 months. No, sir, I wasn't allowed to. She says a casual conversation about gay clubs with a bunkmate landed her in front of naval investigators. Her military career was over a few months later. She was stunned to read her DD-214, her discharge document. Other than honorable due to homosexuality, it hurt. Because my country's telling me I'm not good enough to serve because of who I love. Not because of anything else, just because of who I love. Farrell is part of a group of veterans now suing the Defense Department to get their discharges changed and gain access to benefits like VA loans, tuition assistance, and federal jobs. This case is not about damages. Um, this case is about simply changing that piece of paper. Jocelyn Larkin is one of the lawyers representing Farrell and others in a class action lawsuit against the Pentagon. Every time they have to show that document, they are essentially outed involuntarily. I mean, imagine if it was on your driver's license. It's ridiculous. The suit calls the existing process of trying to change a vet's DD-214 inadequate, opaque, and often requires veterans to hire a lawyer. It would take a lot less effort to change these documents than it did to hound them out and take away their dreams. As for Cheryl Farrell, 
she still has hope for an upgraded discharge and plans for when she gets one. Once they change my discharge, I'm going to frame both of those DD-214s and hang them up. Because I want the country to know that I was willing to serve and die for my country, but you're telling me I'm not able to serve because of who I love? And you're not even willing to serve, but you get all the benefits. How fair is that? A Pentagon spokesperson said the department does not comment on pending litigation, but in an earlier statement, stood by their existing discharge upgrade process. Jim Axelrod, CBS News, New York. President Biden this week marked the one-year anniversary of the PACT Act, the bipartisan law expanding health benefits to veterans exposed to toxic fumes from military burn pits and other sources. In April of this year, Marking the anniversary of a landmark law in Utah, President Biden recalled his son, Beau, who was one of the veterans exposed to toxic fumes from burn pits at bases in Iraq and Afghanistan, and later died of brain cancer. It's personal for my family, but it's also personal for so many of you. Army reservist Leroy Torres also served in Iraq. Ten years later, he was diagnosed with constrictive bronchitis. I was more concerned with either, you know, indirect fire or getting shot, but never did I know that, you know, this uh, invisible enemy was going to follow us home. The PACT Act is designed to assist up to 4.5 million veterans exposed to burn pits or to Agent Orange in Vietnam. So far, there have been about 800,000 signups. Veterans like us are now eligible for new VA care and benefits. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. We're providing more care, more benefits to more veterans than in the history of VA. Army Staff Sergeant Dan Nevins lost both legs in Iraq. He was later diagnosed with colon cancer and has signed up for the PACT Act. Should I succumb to this disease, my family will be taken care of. And, and that is uh, it's powerful and it's um it's just a testimony to our nation standing behind our warriors and o'keefe cbs news the white house the deadline to apply for retroactive benefits has been extended till monday coming up in the kaleidoscope with allison keys segment are the nation's men in crisis that's next on the cbs news weekend roundup at amica insurance We know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including gender. This time we're talking about how men in the nation are doing right now. The research organization Equimundo, Center for Masculinities and Social Justice, is out with a report on the state of American men called From Crisis and Confusion to Hope. The center's co-founder and CEO, Gary Barker, joins us and begins by explaining why the study finds that men are in trouble. One, we can start with loneliness. 60%, nearly two-thirds telling us that no one knows them well. 40% have thought about suicide in the past couple of weeks. Um, About half say that their online lives are more interesting than their offline lives. So one is that, you know, that perfect storm of, of loneliness and the connection of that to mental health. The other thing we need to be worried about is how many say they trust um, misogynist, harmful voices online. Sometimes we call that the manosphere. That's a 
it's a bit of an outward or an outside word of what, you know, the kind of spaces that young men are hanging out on online. But we also need to be concerned about that. Where are they finding solace? Um, we should be concerned about that. Let me let me, men- let me jump in right here, actually, and sure. ask you for people who are going, what's manosphere? Sure. What is a manosphere? I mean, one, I want to say that's a word that, um, you know, those of us who are researchers looking at the spaces that men are hanging out online are called. It's not a word that those looking for spaces online um, call it necessarily. But there, there's a strong connotation with a lot of the negative, the Andrew Tates, Jordan Peterson, um, Bronze Age Pervert, and others who are kind of preaching this backward-looking, take what you can get, you know, put women in their traditional place, wherever that, you know, we know that where that was, um, that are often preaching a lot of negative. At the same time, guys are finding connection, meaning, new community online. Um, so Manosphere is that is that space um, where men are finding connections online for good or for bad. I wonder if some of this is about the me, both the Me Too movement and how men are thinking masculinity is these days. What, I mean, how, is, how has that changed, would you say, over the last several decades? Yeah, I mean, certainly... You know, me too. And the years before, men know that we will be called out for harmful behavior. Um, that you know is a is a legacy. It's an important, necessary impact of women's voices and the women's rights movements of the last decades and years. Um, lots of men, however, feel that that's a threat. That um, and and they told us in our in our survey as well that their reputation can be destroyed with a single comment these days. Um, I think we think as an organization, that's a necessary corrective that men are being held accountable in some cases, not all, not enough for harmful behaviors, for abuse of power, for holding power that should be more evenly distributed. On the other hand, I think what we hear in our study and listening to men is that we haven't created the spaces for calling men in for what do we want instead? I want to call you out for harm. That's that's what humans should do for each other and to each other. Um, but what do we call you into instead? What's the better version of manhood we want to call you into? And sadly, even that conversation about manhood in the U.S. gets turned into a very polarized situation. We've got folks on the far right. We can put Josh Hawley in his book of saying, you know, no, the problem is the left has destroyed um, American manhood. And we've got to go back to a version that feels like, you know, 1950s and men are the breadwinners and women stay at home and men are more capable of all this kinds of stuff. Um, that is clearly not the way forward. But I don't think we have figured out and helped um, young men in particular say, here are ways forward. There's a lot of healthy ideas about manhood that you already know about and live. Um, and how do we call those out and call those in rather? I'm curious because I, I feel like I mean all the way back to, you know, snips and snails and puppy dog tails, right? So, so men are supposed to be tough. They're supposed to be brave. They're supposed to be self-sufficient. Is this putting too much of a burden on people who are trying to figure out at what level of those things should they be? Yeah, they, I mean, they are and they're alive and well. And if anything, our data says we're going backwards into that. <laughs> you know, the women's rights movement has tried to say, look, women can be anything. Um, and there's, you know, there's kind of nothing that men can do that women can't do. I don't think we filled in the space that says, what are the things that men can do that we've told men they can't do? Being amazing caregivers, for example, which lots of men are these days, being able to show our vulnerabilities when we need help, ask for it, because otherwise 
We too often suffer in silence and we see that in suicide rates and lots of other things. That violence isn't the best way. In fact, it's a harmful way to you know, resolve conflicts, et cetera. We've done some measuring of these attitudes in a attitude scale that holds up quite well in terms of its it does accurately measure kind of where men are on these. And we're moving backwards in a version of manhood that says it's violence, it's about repressing emotions. I gotta be tough. I've got to have the biggest biceps possible. The guys who believe in those views of manhood tend to be worse off in terms of their mental health, thinking about suicide, drinking too much, being involved in violence, themselves being victims of violence. So it's it's a false, it's not that it's false. It it offers men kind of an easy version of manhood, but it actually is harmful to, I mean, women have known this forever that this version of manhood is harmful, but it plays out in harm in men's lives as well. I wonder, your data shows that uh, young men in particular are really being affected by mental health issues. What what can be done to help them? I mean, one, we've got to step into this conversation with deep compassion. Um, the loneliness crisis that everybody from, you know, our Surgeon General and many others are talking about, there's very you know, gender-specific ways this plays out. Young women are also in trouble. We know from CDC data about what COVID meant and isolation, depression, suicide ideas of young women as well. It's not as if they're doing well. The difference is young men are less likely to seek help and to talk to others. Our data is quite alarming of how few guys say that they have friends outside of their family circle. Only about 30% say that on a weekly basis, they spend some time with somebody outside of just their family. Um, only 22% say they've got one in five, say they've got more than three people physically close to them that they can turn to, meaning 80% have fewer than that. So whether it's a, you know, I think one is we've simply got to create the social connections. It is often, you know, young men, we're sort of kind of told to, to show this posture in the world, which is, I don't care, I'm fine. <laughs> and I think, you know, if our noses are in screens, which they are a lot of the time, it's really easy for us just to close off, shut down. Um, one is simply to say, how's it going? And to not let silence just sit there. This is not about badgering young men, but it is about being comfortable to let silence sit sometimes, but also just to be insistent. Hey, tell me how's it going. I, I noticed this about you. What's up? Not in accusatory ways, but in open, it, open compassionate ways. Um, it's not just about you know, clinical services for folks who need help. And we definitely need that. But it's more about how do we remake social connections that take place? Some of those online ones are just fine. And there are ways to, you know, to, to connect as well. But really, really, the offline connections, teachers, coaches, parents, peers, um, all the above have to be part of, you know, asking that question, how's it going, guy? Um, Let's talk about it. It's really okay. I can listen. I'm here. Another piece of data that I thought well seemed very disturbing is that so many say that they trust no one. What is what is that about? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that that's both a political moment, right? Where I think lots of folks are, you know, frustrated by just how polarized political debates seem, right? And how much they seem out of touch with the daily um, in different ways across the political spectrum. But, you know, one, I think, is that trust of 
you know, do I believe social institutions that were set up to provide collective good actually work? So I think one, we've got to, you know, say, look, the Commonwealth, the state, um, publicly available spaces and, and opportunities need need a new branding, right? They need, we need to work on faith in those. But the other is just that loneliness part that I'm not sure who I can turn to who doesn't judge me. And that's what we hear a lot in conversations with adult men and young men in particular, that, well, I'm going to be judged by anything I say. And that's partly, you know, how the how the internet works, right? Everybody's got a comment, a like, a dislike, a snide comment. You know, if if a guy's told that, you know, we, we laugh about male tears, those are somehow men making themselves into the victims. Um, you know, it, it's been so easy to kind of, we, we everybody's got an opinion about these topics. And I think in the middle, what we lose is the humanity of young men um, who really feel they've got no place to sort of honestly say, I'm not sure. I'm confused about this. I might be defensive about this. Um, so that's the part that concerns me, that just in kind of our culture wars um, among, obviously, again, young women are not exactly doing well. Um but I think the spaces to talk about this with young men seem particularly missing. I wonder what your data shows about low-income men and men of color and gay men. How, how are they being affected by what's yeah. going on? I mean, low-income men are definitely the ones who show the most mental health stress. Um, they feel it. If we are told, I mean, one, if we've, you know, if you feel a sense of economic precarity, you're more likely to feel mental stress. That is pretty obvious. We also find that across ethnic groups, men who feel the most economic stress, that is, they don't feel they have enough income to achieve their aspirations or make ends meet, are also those the most likely to blame women, to say that I'm falling behind because women um, are winning. And that falls across racial justice, racial, sorry, racial lines. Um, the other thing that we see is that, um, you know, the, it, a lot of the voices of kind of angry manhood online also have racist content and they also fall into white supremacist messages. But there's a lot of men of color who are also finding identity in this restrictive, harmful version of manhood. It's not just about angry white men, although there's plenty of those. Um, and in terms of gay men, we also found that they find solace in these restrictive view versions of manhood as well, although they're also aware that you know homophobia is often a part of that negative view of manhood but it it runs in you know not not so clear you know these guys are over here these guys are over there i mean across the board lots of men finding meaning in a restrictive version um this when i say restrictive i'm talking about that i can't show vulnerability when i feel it that i think i've got more power over women and, and i'm entitled to more um, that violence is a okay way to resolve conflict. And in fact, I've got to show that I'm tough all the time. That's what I'm referring to is this restrictive view. That falls over you know, a huge number of all the men we looked across, age, income, education, ethnicity. Let me just ask you one more. You said one way to solve this would be conversations that men should be having. Do women have any role in these conversations or should we just step aside and let y'all handle it? Um, I thank you for that question. This is not about, you know, let's take Barbie as the reference that, you know, the kins should go off to our little space and figure it out on our own. We got to figure this out together. Um, I think there are, you, you know, moments where men do need to find spaces, affirmation with other men that we can be better men. 
And that version of better men is, you know, showing vulnerability, connecting, putting care and caregiving center, you know, the things that we do that we as men need to create safe spaces for other men on this, but we have to do this together. With young men we work with sometimes, often, it's young women in their same circles at school, after school programs who call them out on some of these ideas and who can also be, you know, are, can also reinforce harmful ideas about manhood. Women are part of making it. <laughs> I don't, that's not to turn women into the, you know, that somehow they're, um, you're responsible for patriarchy. I'm not saying that at all, but to say we're all, you know, we're all involved in making these ideas about manhood and womanhood. And I think we've got to figure it out together. That's Equimundo co-founder and CEO, Gary Barker. Coming up, remembering a rock legend. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. An Arizona woman is checking before she sits on the throne in a restroom these days with really good reason. There was a critter in there. Many people, like the swashbuckling movie hero Indiana Jones, feel a kind of way about them. I hate snakes! Michelle Lespron found a massive snake in her toilet and says it was the stuff of horror novels. The creature sounded like this. <laughs> then it bit a worker from Rattlesnake Solutions, a company that does what you think, all kinds of snake removal. The employee reached into the toilet barehanded, but owner Brian Hughes says at least it wasn't a rattler. It's a coach whip. They, they bite. And one big upside for the brave reptile wrangler. There's no venom. Hey, it's hot out and snakes are trying to stay cool. But a Texas woman dealt with something worse. KFDM-TV Sydney Ferguson reports. It was like I couldn't believe what was happening. Peggy Jones of Silsby was mowing the back six acres of her home on Tuesday, August 1st, when a snake fell down onto her from above. He was starting to dart at my face and come into my face, and he was striking my glasses. And he just kept on and kept on, and I just couldn't get rid of the snake. And it was just, it was like... I think I went into survival mode. Doan says a hawk then came down and pulled the snake from her arm, but not before leaving severe cuts and puncture wounds. The hawk came down four times to get the snake off of my arm. When I looked down, I had blood all over my clothes. I had blood all over my arm. My arm was torn to shreds and I had severe bruising. Jones's husband took her to Altus Emergency Room in Lumberton, where they learned she hadn't been bitten by the snake, but it had done damage to her glasses. Jones describes the entire ordeal as traumatizing. The only thing that I could think of, my husband was at the front of the property and I was screaming and I knew he couldn't hear me. And the only thing I could think of was just to call on Jesus' name to come and help me. Her arm is now healing, but she says the emotional scars will need to heal too. You try to sleep at night, you can't sleep. And, and, and you're afraid to shut your eyes because you know if you shut your eyes and you go to sleep, then you're going to have a nightmare and you're going to relive this situation. But she is amazed at the outpouring of support and says her view of life has changed. I'm, I'm happy I'm alive. I'm happy I'm here. My family didn't, didn't ever mean less to me. They just mean more to me now than before because it showed me how in the blink of an eye, things can change. Now to music, where Taylor Swift is just rolling in it. We mean green, of course, as the first leg of her tour finally comes to a close with 70,000 diehard Swifties in Los Angeles. The tour shattered records, and Swift says her next album, 1989, Taylor's version, will be out in October. In 20 cities... 
more than 40 songs each night. Across three and a half hours, Taylor Swift has belted out, danced, and strummed her way to history. With 53 shows in the U.S. so far, Swift has at least 93 to go across Mexico, South America, Asia, Australia, Europe, and back here in the U.S. and Canada. By the time it's over, her shows are expected to near $1.5 billion in ticket sales. It's an unprecedented moment in music history, says Rolling Stone senior writer Brittany Spanos. The economies are booming in every single city where, where Taylor is kind of touching. Concert goers are spending an average of about $1,300 each per show. That includes tickets, travel, outfits, merchandise, and food. So we're talking hotels, hotels, restaurants, restaurants beauty salons, malls, last-minute costumes, you know, outfits. They're going to all these boutiques and stores, thrift stores. Overall, the tour is expected to generate $5 billion for local economies, more than the GDP of 50 countries. Welcome to the Renaissance. And it's not just Swifties generating this kind of buzz. The Beehive is swarming cities worldwide, too, and could generate more than $2 billion in ticket sales. People just want to really value pleasure and experience that means something to them right now. Jerika Duncan, CBS News. Finally, farewell to two amazing musicians who made their marks in very different ways. First, a singer-songwriter whose protest songs made him a star in South Africa and was the subject of an Oscar-winning documentary, died this week in Detroit. Sixto Rodriguez had never been a household name here after his albums flopped in the 1970s. I just wasn't meant to be so lucky then. You know, I think maybe that's it. But his music resonated with the people of South Africa. Sugar Man! Where his songs protesting the Vietnam War and racial inequality inspired people. A Swedish filmmaker's 2013 documentary, Searching for Sugar Man, presented Rodriguez to a much larger audience. This might be one of the best stories I ever heard. It was like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or something like that. The man from Detroit was once called the greatest protest singer and songwriter that most people never heard of. Sixto Rodriguez was 81. Matt Piper, CBS News. Next, CBS's Anthony Mason pays tribute to a singer-songwriter whose work changed the tenor of rock in the nation. Other musicians, including Bruce Springsteen and Eric Clapton, worshipped at the altar of Robbie Robertson's talent. Robertson was the lead guitarist for the band, which backed Bob Dylan during his 1956-66 tour. The band's timeless blend of blues, gospel, and rock left an indelible mark on American music. I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. At their center, Canadian-born lead guitarist and songwriter Robbie Robertson. Take a load off, I spoke with Robertson for CBS Sunday Morning in 2016 about the band's rapid rise and equally rapid breakup partially due to drug use among its members. It came to a place and then I said, why don't we bring this episode to a conclusion? Right. A beautiful musical conclusion. The band played their farewell concert on Thanksgiving Day in 1976, immortalized in Martin Scorsese's iconic film, The Last Waltz. The night 
I'm not big on retracing my footsteps and going back to things, you know. I'm much more curious about what's around the next corner and what the next challenge is. A musical pioneer until the very end. For CBS Mornings, I'm Anthony Mason. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor and Alan Pang provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder... Had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.